0: Hello and welcome to the Antifada. This is Sean K.B. and I'm here with Andy. What's up, Andy? Hello, feeling good? In addition to Mapache Andy, we are here today with a very special guest. We have Peter Leimbaugh, a Marxist historian of the colonial Atlantic world and a member of the Midnight Notes Collective. Uh, Today we'll be discussing in particular his excellent 2019 book, Red Round Globe Hot Burning, a tale at the crossroads of Commons and culture of enclosure, of love and terror, of race and class, and of Kate and Ned Despard. But also more generally we're going to be talking about historical struggles for the Commons um, and against capitalism and empire, both in the past and today. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here, Sean.
1: Great to have you. Your book, it's about a lot of things. It's about the revolutionary era at the end of the 18th century uh, in Haiti, in Latin America, in Ireland, and in Europe. But really, it's about this incredible couple, Ned and Kate, um, and their relationship, which is, uh, it's international, it's interracial. And you describe it as a sort of commons in itself, as a way of understanding the commons and... How, like all commons, their relationship had to be separated. So, uh, I think that's a that was a really interesting way to to kind of start the book, uh, talking about this sort of metaphysical, this romantic commons, this getting to this primal unity uh, and a way of understanding the revolutionary era. So, I want to hear a lot about uh, Ned and Kate and why you chose to write about them, and I want to I want to understand what the commons were. Andy, that's so many questions there. <laughs> um, Sean,
2: you got to keep track of it, and I'll do my best to yeah. to uh, answer a few of them. Yeah, it's a off. love story, that's for sure, and it's a love story between two people. But I had some things to say about love, you know, largely from uh, from Plato, I think, uh, or from Greek times, the love of friends or comrades, the love of uh, sexual love, um, the, uh, the different different kinds of, of, and I wanted to relate these to our notions of solidarity. Your, and your question began with a revolutionary era, and what I want to say, and has been important to me as an historian, and it's important to me to assert right away, is that we live in the same era, that the era that began at that time, is the same era that we live in now, that the problems that we face had their origins then. Um, everyone, I think, knows this from the 1619 Project, you know, that where major debates are happening in schooling in the United States now over what happened in 1619, and is it still important? And it's the same with this book, Red Round Globe, Hot Burning. When an you- Irishman, an African-American woman, fought against empire. They fought against privatization. They fought against the penitentiary. They, um, And like George Floyd, the breath was taken away from Edward Marcus Despard. When he, with seven others, was hanged by the neck, was throttled... In 1803, so to me, that year 1803 is a key turning point in world history, when the counter revolution really begins, with Jefferson in the United States, with Napoleon in France, with the regime of God, private property, and law in England, with the with the, and then the disappearance of Ireland as a political independent entity. So these are big changes at that time. But the biggest change at that time had to do with energy. And it's the transition from wood to coal, which was as devastating to social relations as the transition from coal to oil would be a century later. What this did was to begin, the geologists tell us, a new epoch in geological time. So we have to see the revolutionary era within a geological epoch, which is new, and that's that's the Anthropocene, um, caused by uh, or perhaps a dominating influence in the creation of the Anthropocene was the coal economy, the steam engine, and the many forms that coal was used. To me, that, uh, that process of coal mining, of coal transportation, of coal burning um, dominated the, the British economy for more than a century, you know, right into the 1920s to f- finally have the nail put in its coffin under Thatcher. <clears throat> but this Anthropocene is what we're still living with. This is the the climate change that people say now. But it has so many effects on food, uh, on the virus, on on the Arctic, on forests on the waters and the f- only the future that is being offered us is mars i mean not that's to speak uh, outlandishly but anyway that's how's that for a start
0: that's a really good start um elon musk and peter Thiel are looking towards mars and they're looking at a planet that they're destroying and uh, they're looking for an escape hatch and I'm not sure that that's in the future for all of us. So, You have a line, you know, that's not just in the title of the book that, that runs through uh, your book. It's a line from William Blake's uh, 19, uh, 1793 poem, Visions of the Daughters of Albion. And you use this very evocatively, red, round, globe, hot, burning. What does this line from that poem and William Blake's work uh, tell us about this era and the struggles that were happening at the time?
2: Yeah, Okay. it has a great deal to say, Um, but let me quote the passage. I think it goes as follows. They told me that night and day were all that I could see. Uh, They told me that I had five senses to enclose me up. And they enclosed my infinite brain into a narrow circle and sunk my heart into the abyss, a red round globe, hot burning, till all from life I was obliterated and erased. So to make two comments, first about the phrase and second about the poem as a whole, The phrase itself is meant to describe at once and simultaneously what happens subjectively to a human being or human beings and what happens to the cosmos. In other words, there's a unity in Blake. He rejects the dualism of Isaac Newton and the unity is between a self and universe or or life and universe. But this is maybe too abstract because Blake's poem was about the key events of the revolutionary era, that is, the first successful slave revolt in world history that took place on the richest colony of the European empires that produced the hunger suppressing addictive drug, sugar. And that colony was Saint-Domingue or Santo Domingo, or by 1803, it becomes Haiti. This had been the richest colony will soon become the poorest in the world. Blake's poem was about this revolt in 1791, in August of 1791, a year later, he wrote the poem and it's about a black man, a European woman and a, and a master, a rapist. And so this is the first, one of the first revolutionary acts of poetic solidarity with a settler colonial, vicious settler colonial colony, Haiti. And it it's also helps us to see Ireland also as a settler colonial, a settler colony that suffered repeated famines. And, re- and in 1798, a huge uprising that was suppressed by the massacre of more than 30,000 people in the summer of 1798. Those who were not uh, massacred, many fled to exile Uh, to the United States, where the journalists among them supported Jefferson. Many others to the Silesian and German coal fields. But most important of Irish exiles were those to England, because it was Irish people who made up the backbone. Breaking work of English industrialization at harvest time, in building the cities, and within uh, the cotton factories. Yeah, so, so two colonies, the uh, Caribbean and Ireland, are loosely figured in the two figures, Edward Despard and Catherine Despard. And that's the um, the link between the title and the and the history that that goes on. And it's a, a tale at the crossroads, because like the great um, blues guitarist Johnson at the crossroads, he had powers of music, but he had to give his soul. And Same with the struggle for the commons against enclosure, for love, against terror. Uh, Yeah. So that's why it's called A a Tale at the Crossroads. Uh,
1: Speaking of of music, there is one of many amazing scenes in the book is when Napoleon sends uh, the French army to suppress the Haitian Revolution and they arrive to Haiti to find these former slaves organized into their ar- own army, singing the French revolutionary songs, and uh, just this horrific turn of you know in a, in a short period of time of the of this universalist revolutionary ethic to the suppression of a revolution, um, and that there are so many things in the book that really give you that sense. Of, of it all going wrong, um, but I wanted to ask, what, what was the potential um, if it hadn't gone wrong? Uh, and uh, another thing that y- you mentioned Jefferson before, and you talk about Jefferson in the book, um, an- another uh, aspect of your work I'm familiar with is your introduction to the Verso anthology on Thomas Paine, um, and you write about Thomas Paine as almost this proto-communistic thinker, uh, do you think that this revolutionary era um, at the end of the 18th century had potential of of something like communism or socialism? Um, and if so, uh, where did it go wrong? And and what could have been?
2: What could have been? Is that is that grammatically speaking? Is that the subjective mood or a conditional? What it might have been? I I don't know.
1: Well, if something went wrong, we have to have an idea of of we how, have it, to, how it could have been better, right? Right. We have to put it right.
2: So, I want to go back to the opening, which is we still live in that era. Right. The story is not over, um, and it's essential to. I'm not sure what you know. I I'm not sure I can answer your question on its own terms. I need to answer it by saying, well, 1803, Despard was hanged. Uh, Catherine, his revolutionary comrade and partner was unable to prevent the formation of the panopticon, of the penitentiary, which was attempted also in 1803 in England, but failed, partly owing to her efforts and the efforts of the other women of the political prisoners. We still live with a penitentiary but Ruthie Gilmore, Angela Davis, many comrades inside prisons are doing the same struggle that she initiated against the penitentiary. So that's what I mean when I say the story is not yet over. Um, the penitentiary was not formed in England but it, at that time, but 10 or 15 years later, it will be at Millbank, um, And here in the U.S., you have the penitentiaries all over, but the one in Joliet, uh, where Joliet, Illinois is it, or Indiana, the, where the federal pen is, that's still built on the basis of the penitentiary and penopticon as uh, Jeremy Bentham imagined it. Okay, uh, the deeper part of your question is, if coal began that Anthropocene, how can we live without it? And here I think we need to begin to introduce not love, but the commons. Um, let me just, it's easier for me to, if I have to start with these, like chronological facts or coincidences. And one of these is in 1803, when there were more acts of enclosure by the British Parliament, that is an act that Eliminates common lands, eliminates open field agriculture, delimits it as private property, and erects fences and hedges, and puts up a sign saying, no trespassing. So that's an act of enclosure. Those who used to live on that land or whose livelihood depended on it are expelled just as Palestinians are expelled from common lands in Palestine to become the proletariat of the oil fields or to go into world exile. Good. I'm trying to see simultaneously, to see events now and events then, in the same temporality, which is not over. It's a struggle to... Okay, so... More acts of enclosure were passed in 1803 than ever before in human history. At the same time, more ships were embarked for West Africa for cargoes of kidnapped children, women, and young men as slaves across the Atlantic in the barracoons of the Caribbean and then into the sugar plantations or the cotton fields of the American, or of Turtle Island, uh, let's say of the USA, kind of a, a horrid expression, even though Tom Paine invented it. I prefer Turtle Island. But the USA at its, was being formed at this time of maximum enclosure, of course in the USA, this is not done with acts of enclosure, it's done by West Point surveyors and settler terrorists. Well, we need to dismantle that system now, but we cannot dismantle it without at the same time solving the human problems that were created. So we must find ways of commoning now, not to return to the, ag- the particular agrarian commons of 1802, or to the particular Musha of Palestine, of a thousand years until the nakaba but those experiences remain within us remain with us with our memories with our with our hearts not just sometimes they're degraded as nostalgia or as romance but this is this is just uh scratches the surface, and this is why, so the book begins with Ireland and the depth of commoning experiences, not just on, both on the land and in the community and in the human soul,
0: or I was, I the was, Irish soul. I was shocked to, to learn that there were five different kinds of commons under this, uh, this subterranean Irish communal structure that existed even into 1803.
2: Yes, and, and beyond. Um, even the conservative Irish Free State, uh, in its folklore investigations, called on the folklorists to recover forms of commoning. And for us, too, in here on Turtle Island in North America, There are many forms of commoning and forms of commons. But it's essential that these forms of commons address energy. And this is why uh, yesterday I attended a 1,000 Arab Americans in Ann Arbor, Michigan, who were protesting the Zionist attack on the Palestinian people in uh, Gaza and the West Bank and in other parts of Palestine. And one of the slogans was, from Detroit to Palestine, occupation is a crime. Now I'm not sure this is what was meant, but certainly if you think about that slogan, one wants to ask, we know that the Zionists are attempting to have occupied Palestine, but who is occupying Detroit? This is, Detroit is a crossroads. It's like Istanbul, you know, between Asia and Europe. Detroit similarly has been a crossroads in Turtle Island. And the Potawatomi people, the Huron people, are not over. Indigenous people are not finished. On the contrary, as water protectors online. They are trying to preserve the greatest and largest fresh water on the planet against attempts by the oil economy to pipe oil or tar sands from Alberta through Minnesota, through Lake Superior, Lake Michigan. So to me, When I heard that slogan, from Detroit to Palestine, occupation is a crime, I couldn't help but think of the struggles of the, led by Winona LaDuke, for example, of the women water protectors who are trying to preserve clean waters at the headwaters of the Mississippi River, for instance, as well as the Great Lakes. <clears throat> wow. Tell me. Um, so sorry, so that's, the com- that's how the commons in Detroit, and then the people in Detroit, that's another story of urban gardening, of self-help, of uh, trying to organize uh, self-security against the terrorist states, against the police forces, which have been anything but uh, helpful to a human community, human commons.
0: One thing that might surprise people who read the book is that it doesn't deal with simply Haiti. It doesn't deal with simply Ireland or England. It's actually about this um, this uh, Atlantic world, this colonial Atlantic world where people and ideas and commodities are all being moved around. And that you, you also did that with, um, with Marcus Redeker in the wonderful Many Headed Hydra book. What do you think we gain by understanding not these histories as national histories, but instead understanding this kind of burgeoning world system of accumulation and dispossession that's rising at, the, at this time?
2: What is gained by this is uh, it frees us from uh, nationalist bigotry, number one. What is gained by this is new cuisine we can we can have different meals um, different
1: restaurants it's very important it's very important to people our age we love international cuisine
2: <laughs> yeah, okay. My appetite is diminishing with age i can I confess, but uh, I fight against it, but that just leads to belly fat, <laughs> yeah, so. With with Marcus Redeker, whose uh, the many-headed Hydra was an attempt, as you put it very well, to see um, the development of the Western Hemisphere, especially the Atlantic, so-called Atlantic world, uh, from from below, from those who actually whose labor built it, from the women who were raped and violated to become exclusive breeders of labor power, to the, to the children who were uh, forced to grow up as cotton pickers, to the first, as C.L.R. James used to say, the first proletariat of the world were those who cleared the field for the sugar plantations. You know, I began by talking about, um, what's it, uh, Jefferson, But it was Jefferson in 1803 who was part of the counter-revolution of that year when in France, by the way, the revolutionary calendar was abolished and a return to the Christian calendar. Jefferson promoted the purchase of the the so-called Louisiana Purchase, which just provided a route for the expansion of the cotton plantation and the acquisition of Native American territories in exchange for which Napoleon thought that he could have the monies to destroy Haiti. So this Louisiana Purchase really symbolizes Uh, the counter-revolution. And I really like the way Andy expressed counter-revolution by saying it all went wrong. Um, By prison, by enclosure, by enslavement.
1: Yeah, and I like the way that you express how we're still in this fight today. Of course, in the last several years, there's been an explosion of an abolitionist movement uh, against the prison system, the police, carceral society in general. But it's not the first abolitionist movement in the United States. Uh, Often we'll think about the the abolitionist movement around the time of the Civil War with John Brown, the Transcendentalists. Uh, But you write about one that's even earlier, um, the the abolitionists against uh, slavery and prisons in the late 18th century. Uh, What do you see as being the through line between these? Is it just a certain philosophy on what freedom means? Well, I think there is
2: there is a through line of, yes, of freedom, for sure. There's a through line of ideas. You know, I'm thinking of David Walker's appeal. You know, speaking about somebody who had Thomas Jefferson's number, it would be David Walker. That's his appeal on behalf of African-Americans, is a great document of abolition, both of slavery and the prison. The two were inse- inseparable and deeply connected in the 19th century. Yeah, I thought there was a through line, Andy. And uh, Marcus Redeker and I, And now many others also are seeing a through line from, even from the 16th century, you know, from the Peasants' Revolt, which brought us the rainbow flag. Uh, The Peasants' Revolt and the 12 articles of the peasants of Germany in 1525, you know, at the heart of the Renaissance and Reformation, their suppression was extremely violent and was a a suppression led by states, nations, and religions, Protestant and Catholic alike. But those 12 articles called for the retention of common rights and the commons. That's 1526. That memory of that persists and it develops and it grows. Um, So there is this uh, unity and... um, you know by the way, this is not only the anniversary of George Floyd's death and the second and the second day of heightened consciousness about Palestine, it's also what uh, Christians call p- the Pentecost, uh, when nations of all the world cooperated. That's the meaning of the Pentecost it, uh, is that it's international. From the standpoint of the, of the crew of a ship, of the people in a factory, of the gangs of at of a sugar weeding and hoeing party, the people come from many different languages the proletariat is already cosmopolitan, regardless of what the bourgeoisie begins to organize in nation-states as means of, of division and a means of war. So it needs to create an international proletariat, on the one hand, and on the other hand, to set us against each other. So it's this double and contradictory process
1: that, uh, that takes place. But I guess maybe I had a deeper implication, uh, which goes back to some of the the contemporary debates around American history that you alluded to before referring to the 1619 projects, which has caused some debate both within the left and within the white house. The white house released this report on, on this recently and tried to ban discussion of it and, certain schools or something like that. Uh, and as far as I can tell, it goes into the question of, of American racism and how redeemable the United States is uh, if racism was simply an unfortunate um, uh, historical thing that had to be overcome or if it's inseparable with the American project. And I feel like... Uh, you might have some interesting perspectives on this debate.
2: Yeah, I, I would think so. But I'm, I'm struggling with it. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, and that's why earlier I referred to Turtle Island rather than to the USA. Because I, I think we need a really fundamental and deep. Reorganization of ourselves. And the USA may be beyond redemption as such. And this is why a return to Turtle Island or a return to some other polities. I mean, let's remember there have been several political regimes on this continent, you know, besides the USA. You know, there's the Articles of Confederation, and there were the different colonies, and then there were the different indigenous uh, political forms. And I think it's going to be time for another political form. And we need to be part of that. Um, how and when we go about it, and does it? Is it through what kind of law, what kind of relationship to the land, especially what kind of relationship to, um, I mean, my own perspective is that the class division between the wealthy owners of land and of the means of production, they need to be expropriated. And by expropriated, I don't, I don't mean going to their house and breaking their windows and taking their silver. I mean forcing them out of power. And this is going to mean more than, the, than I think the DSA Another, well, I'm not, our own vision of what must happen has to be, I think, formed in a worldwide context, in a planetary context. This is uh, a context that includes South Africa, that includes Palestine. I don't think our, yeah, I mean, this isn't of course, here's where our thinking and our envisioning must go, I believe. How this relates to our politics today depends first of all on what emphasis we place on the reproduction and safety of women and children. And that how we support the women's struggle for health, for nutrition, for clean water and now clean air. I mean that slogan I can't breathe. It's not just the slogan of against terrorism. It's also a slogan for a return of the atmosphere to a health providing, you know, mixture of oxygen, CO2, nitrogen and a removal of the particulates that otherwise are destroying our, our lungs. 1803 was when bronchitis was first diagnosed. 1803, that is the assault on the lungs. That's when public life was interrupted by coughs, by wheezing, by, by snivels. So these are deep social questions. Not so, not so deep, they're obvious. And yet they're excluded
1: from the political debate. Okay. But I, just, I had one other thought along those lines is that George Floyd also had COVID when he was killed. Is that and so? Yes. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the there was such anger uh, you know, starting in his neighborhood among people that knew him that somebody who had been inflicted by this pandemic that is um, disproportionately affecting working class and poor people of color uh, had to rip off this store for 20 bucks and he was killed for it. So I I think the pandemic and resistance to the policies of the pandemic was a big part of the uprising that people haven't really uh, acknowledged yet. And yeah, tying it in with, air quality and environmentalism in general, just health of, of what it means to be human. is. Uh, I think it's all tied in in this way that's maybe not totally articulated, but I think we're all aware of it on this deeper level. And I think
2: we're, yeah, we're struggling to find words to it, find visions that can replace it. Uh, there was another thought, Andy, that occurred to me about the George Floyd um, murder, which was the grief for him and the anger at his murderers transformed a street and an urban area into a sacred space, and this, um, and into a common place for a while, anyway. And I think, to me, this is also a sign of the future.
0: I've got a, a, maybe a huge and complex question, but there was a very evocative chapter in your book about the um, Anthropocene and about the rise of the coal economy that you spend so much time rightfully talking about. And it was, if I got this right, you tell me if I got this wrong, but you were arguing that the, the scientist Hutton, uh, who comes up with uh, the concept of uh, volcanism essentially, that there's heat that comes from under the land and pushes it up. And that's why, in, in the late 18th century, they were seeing these formations, uh, rock formations that existed. You seem to be arguing that humanity, as such, could only really understand the inner workings of the earth itself when humanity was able to start changing uh, the material world, using things like coal from under the earth to make things like iron. Right, so it's only at our at our at the point where we can start doing the things that the earth does that we can start to understand scientifically how that happens. What is this? Do I have that right? And what does this tell us about ideas and social practice then and now?
2: Uh, Sean, I I got lost a little bit, but um, I'm sorry if the, it was com- complicated in the question. I th- I think uh, those who enclosed the surface of the land led also in the designation of parts of the land that would be uh, mined where shafts would penetrate the earth and children and people would be sent down to haul away coal at the at the coal face in darkness underground and in with flooding and dangers from their point of view it was the place of the devil and the first songs we have of those who worked underground in these mines were ones concerning the devil not just as we know was true in latin america at the silver mines in but also in england in the coal mines so this was a a to them an a part of the earth that was not the friendly, that was dangerous, that was m- messing with powers that were powers of destruction. And I'm not sure, speaking of myself, that there's much else to be said.
0: Let me try course, another way, I'm sorry, got
2: the the Coal Owners is a different story. Um, oh, there's a great novel, oh, but I can't remember it right at the moment, about coal mining in Newcastle in this era by a wonderful Atlantic historian. Oh, it'll come to me. But in any case, <clears throat> when these mines began to be Delved, began to be formed, and then an infrastructure to bring the coal to the surface, and then to transport it to different parts of, of the world. You know, this, uh, this was not a, this was such a, a fundamental process and it's so contradictory to the notion that the earth was to be penetrated in this uh, violent way. By uh, I'm thinking of Carolyn Merchant's work, and I'm thinking of Francis Bacon, oh. the founder of English empirical science who considered this uh, the rape of the earth, the rape of mother earth. So I, I'm, I don't, uh, but I'm not a specialist, you know, in the coal miners, the, the owners, the bourgeoisie of either coal or oil. I'm and yet t- these are the lords of humankind.
0: I'm thinking about this intersection between human ideas and social practice. Um, okay. I'm thinking about how uh, it's it's obvious that it's not ex- accidental about how these universal ideas of human freedom and liberty that really explode in uh, the 17th, certainly with the uh, English Civil War, but then um, up until the revolutionary period that you're talking about. I'm, I'm interested in how it is that the, the mode of production that arises... Um, the ways of life that are created by that, um, give birth to such revolutionary ideas. What's the connection between those? And um, what can we salvage from them today? Yeah. The idea of bourgeois right, for example. What? The idea of bourgeois right.
2: Bourgeois right. Bourgeois right's largely based on individualism, the rights of individuals, and to land, to property, I I would say. And human uh, rights, at least under Magna Carta, they don't talk about human rights. They talk about powers. They talk about capabilities. Um, So what are working class powers of access to land, access to waters, access to wood, to forestry, access to, now for us, clean air, clean water. Uh, These are powers. So that's, that's different from rights. And I think powers also entails within it I was going to say obligation, but a capacity to effectuate the right yourself. So it's an, an aspect of self-activity that a commoner has, that a commoner is able to enforce. <clears throat> For the big changes of science that I think you're um, alluding to, so many of them were in service to the European bourgeoisie. That a a friend of mine says that science is the way capital understands itself. Mm. It's an an ideology. And certainly the time of counter-revolution, 1803, is when biology, geology, are first formed under those names and also at a time when the atomic theory is developed by Dalton in England, major step in splitting uh, matter. I'm not saying he invented the uh, atomic conception of matter, but he fundamentally developed it to our understanding of molecules. Also happened in November, 1803. so chemistry, physics, astronomy, biology, all have new forms of, in alliance with property holders, capitalist developers after 1803. I think that was a crucial time. Certainly in France, you know, with Napoleon and the development of the, Big research lycée. Certainly in England with the Protestant dissenting traditions. So I'm trying to look at it, Sean, not from the standpoint of humanity, but from the standpoint of what classes or what kinds of human beings are we talking about?
0: Um, If there was, if you're talking about a, a process of disenchantment, really of the world as well. You know, that's what science is. It brings um, these older notions of, uh, of the unity of people with the environment. It brings those down to Earth and ultimately destroys them. So do you think there needs to be a process, a working class process or, pr- or a project of a sort of uh, re-enchantment of the world in order for them to be for there to be a strong commoning movement? Do we have to try to return to these notions of um, of who we are and how we connect to the world in order to effectuate that? Definitely, definitely. And what would that look like, do you think?
2: Oh, I don't, uh, in many different ways. Uh, For me at my age, you know, in in my situation, um, just personally, I take great joy in trees birds in that we just put tomatoes in Um, I mean this is I love now seeing and being with people again oh god yeah so there's just I want to sing again there's just so so much um, in life that that we need to preserve and treasure and cherish. Um.
0: The, um, the interesting thing about the violence in this era, and you see this with the impressment of soldiers and sailors, uh, this process of crimping that you're talking about, and also this enclosure which creates these vagabonds, this landless proletariat, um, it's shocking and in some sense surprising to see the amount of violence that was necessary on the part of the ruling class in order to um, get society to submit, to, uh, to take these revolutionary ideas which were universal that come out of the various revolutions of that time and proscribe them and then pull them in and circumscribe them really. And this is like, I don't know, I guess um, the anti-war movement, we you were talking about Gaza and Palestine we were connecting with everything before um really is this like this unifying moment because we have just as violent a uh, capitalist empire as we had back then and it took massive violence in order to defeat us to defeat the working class then and you still see that uh with empire today i don't know maybe you could um reflect maybe on the violence back then and the violence today and how we start to imagine uh you know fighting uh fighting against war
2: yeah Um, well let's remember it's not just war it's also the war on poor people which is conducted in the air through the environment uh, with echo side we live in the shadow of Fukushima um, so nuclear energy is going to be uh, touted And it's Hiroshima and Nagasaki can never be too far from us, you know, in light of Chernobyl and Fukushima. So these are huge powers of violence. Uh, But you might say, well, there have been huge numbers of life as well. Earlier, uh, my work first began by studying those who were hanged in England and you know, I studied um, 1,300 plus uh, men and women and children who were publicly hanged in London alone, you know, not speaking of other cities or not speaking of other counties, not even speaking of uh, colonies where genocide massacre and massacre were often the the means of di- of terror and of death. The public hangings uh, occurred in England for, sen- for 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 centuries, and were essential to the enclosure of lands and terrorizing a population. The wars themselves of the. 17th century, you know, brought diseases as well as fire and mutilation, gunpowder, dynamite, cannon, thermodynamics, Yeah, so there's uh, as for the history of assaults, say, through studying the criminal code or the proportion of quote casualties in state sponsored war, you know, and the how that compares with today, I'm not sure. I don't really do that kind of history, that numerological comparison. The kind of history I have done has been to see how these forms of violence are connected with the violence of work, Mm -hmm. the violence of the plantation, the violence of the factory, the violence of the sweatshop, the violence of the sailing vessel, the big ship. But definitely, there is a a connection, and the violences of work in our era today are generally are concealed yeah. You know the though Modi's India is making it clearer. the metals from the Congo, the war as as an environment for capitalist discovery and extraction. Is to, persists. Um, yeah, I, I I don't think I'm, I'm comfortable in making such comparisons, such very large comparisons across centuries. Sure. I do think there's uh, the epoch that the era, the revolutionary era of the 1790s, and our own, I think, remains the same. You know, it's the steam engine rules at Fukushima, just as it ruled at, in Watts' steam engine and the Birmingham factories.
1: At the end of, the, uh, of your book, um, you go looking for Kate Despard's grave. Um, and I feel like uh, that is a very clear um, desire for redeeming um, their mission. Uh, do you, if if, uh, if we were to try to carry on their struggle today and take some lessons from their life, what kinds of things should we be doing uh, in fighting colonization, uh, prison, uh, race, to undo these things?
2: Well, the Zapatistas speak about the war of oblivion, that is, of forgetting. And I think that we, uh, like at the George F- Floyd Plaza in Minneapolis, in Minneapolis, turned it into a, a place of remembrance. I think the Lynching Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, is an attempt to remember. I think uh, when people make little altars where someone has been uh, killed, even by an automobile or by police violence, uh, it's an attempt to remember. Uh, these are people's remembrancers, and historians and antiquarians depend on them. We depend on on people to remind us what is important. Um, so, the war, searching for Catherine Despard's grave was an, a. A humble part of my project of treating her seriously as a human being—that is, to pay my respects to her remains—and—and and here, Andy, um, you know, I—I I th- thought I'd found it, but I was. R- Wrong. I found something else instead, which had concerned her—her her ideas, which live. But somebody else, inspired by this new interest in Catherine Despard, found a notice in an English provincial newspaper in 1815, I think, where she st- still existed, and and perished somewhere in England, and then even another scholar inspired by this story was able to locate new records of her in Jamaica, where she had servants who had were enslaved, or her mother did. So the story keeps going. <laughs> you know, the story's not, that particular story's not over. Even though As you said at the beginning, for for me, it's just at the crossroads of other historical
1: themes, which I wanted to to raise. But I sounds like there might be a red round globe hot burning too.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it'll it'll be collective. You know, these other scholars—ones in Jamaica, another ones. uh, Let's see. uh, In I think in Cambridge in England. And, and I'm sure there are others who I don't know about, because, you know, history is a way of, uh, it doesn't just belong to professional historians. This is why I use the expression, people's remembrancer.
0: Mm. As we like to say on this show, history is a weapon.
2: Yeah, and if you don't like it, go out and make some of your own.
0: Hmm. There you go, make history. I think that's as good a place to leave it as any. We're going to put the link to uh, Red Round Globe Hot Burning uh, in the show notes. So uh, don't read the second before you read the first. And uh, Peter, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to be with yeah, us. Yeah, thanks today. a lot. It's a pleasure You're to welcome. talk to you,
2: Andy. Good, good to hear you again. And hello to comrades at Woodbine.
1: I, I will let them know.
2: Good, thanks. Okay. Thank you,
0: Sean. Thanks again, Peter. Take care. Commoners all. Commoners all. Commoners all. all.